To her supporters, Ilan Omar represents the American dream. Born in Somalia, her family fled to a refugee camp in neighbouring Kenya before securing asylum in America when she was 12. Two years ago, she arrived in Congress. Here in Minnesota, we don't only welcome immigrants, we send them to Washington, she said in her victory speech in Minneapolis. Congresswoman Omar was the first member to wear a hijab, overturning a ban on headwear in the chamber as she was sworn in. To Donald Trump and his loyalists, Omar herself and the policies she supports represent the risk of immigration run amok. Omar wants to scrap the Immigration Enforcement Agency. She's also been accused of using anti-Semitic tropes. In one of the ugliest moments of a presidency filled with them, Trump suggested that she go back to Somalia. It was exactly the kind of enervating social media fight Joe Biden hopes to banish from Washington to focus on practical solutions that can win broad support. But he now faces a very real emergency on the Mexican border. Congresswoman Omar is among those urging him to do more to transform America's immigration system. It's the first big test of Joe Biden's consensual approach. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can President Biden solve the immigration issue? Don't come over was his message this week. But Joe Biden's policies have helped fuel rumours that it's easier to enter the country than it was before he was president. Incidents involving illegal immigrants on America's southern border have doubled in a year. Children are once again crossing in large numbers. The president needs to fix the problem urgently. But on this issue, the centre ground is sparse. How should he respond? In this episode, we'll have reporting from the border in South Texas, We'll look back on Ronald Reagan's big immigration reform and we'll speak to someone working in that shrinking bipartisan policy space. With me as ever to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, what's been happening in New York this week? In New York, I continue to watch the fallout between Cuomo and other New York Democrats with Cuomo uh, sticking his in his heels and refusing to resign. And then I've, along with everyone else, was really saddened to see the shootings of Asian Americans this week in Atlanta. And for Joe Biden, it's a challenge, I think, for him. He's trying to express sympathy for the community of Atlanta and for Asian Americans in Atlanta without attributing motive to the shooter, which has earned him uh, criticism among those on the left who want him to be more explicit in calling out hate crimes. So you see him trying to get this balance of trying to deal with a problem in a sensitive manner, but some of his allies saying that he's not going far enough. And I think you're going to see that again and again across different policy areas, including immigration, which we'll talk about today. John Fassman, how about you? What's been going on in your part of the state? About the same. Uh, Andrew Cuomo seems to have learned the Ralph Northam lesson, which is that if you just hunker down and wait for the outrage to move on, it will move on. And that's what appears to be happening. Um, on a more melancholy note, like Charlotte, I've also been horrified by the shooting in Atlanta. That's a city that I lived in for five and a half years. My son was born there. 
Uh, a lot of people I love are there, and I just uh, it's very sad, very sad news all around. Well, President Joe Biden is heading to Atlanta this week to play a role that he's sadly very well qualified for as comforter in chief. While he's there, he'll also be thinking about another crisis that he has to try and fix, and one which has really high political salience in America. The government expects more migrants to be apprehended along the Mexican border this year than at any time in the past two decades. This year, according to those projections, a record 120,000 unaccompanied children arriving at the border could end up in US custody, which is more than ever. Alexandra Switch-Bass is based in Texas for The Economist. She's been down to the Rio Grande Valley to see what's going on. In Brooks County, kind of sits right in the middle of, of this of this immigration issue that's occurring. Sheriff Benny Martinez has three cowboy hats hanging on the rack in his office and six rifles in a glass case behind his desk. It's uh, 944 square miles. We're in the southernmost tip of Texas in the town of Falfurious. It's 70 miles from the border with Mexico. And what makes it unique is it has a checkpoint. Uh, probably one of the busiest checkpoints along the Southwest corridor. But migrants trying to avoid border patrol come through here in high numbers. It's hot and rugged terrain. 700 migrants have died in Brooks County since 2009. Dehydration is the main culprit. And because of the checkpoint, we also have trucks, you know, maybe two or three at a time that would cut fences and, and, and they'll travel through private ranch lands. Sheriff Martinez has long silver hair and an easy smile. He's a grandfather, but in the five years he's been in the job, he's never seen anything quite like the past few months. Well, it, it feels like th there's no it, it, it seems like everything was just turned upside down. So we're going through a security checkpoint. How are y'all doing? All right. Have a good day. Thank you. I took a dusty drive with Matt Robinson. He runs security for the East Foundation, a nonprofit with a huge tract of land in the Rio Grande Valley. Prior to that, I was a ranch hand. So rural background. Around us, the landscape is filled with tall brush, mesquite trees, and cactus. There were signs of migrants and the smugglers who profit from them everywhere. And there's a Good Samaritan group that that's, has put those barrels out, and they got water jugs in them to uh, help the illegal, illegals um, just not dehydrate or die of dehydration out, out here. They find a place they've got water. Many of those who make the crossing from Mexico are not even seen or apprehended by Border Patrol. Next to the highway, the dirt was carefully plowed. It works as a fire break and a way to detect illegal immigrants. The dirt picks up their footprints. Okay, that gate right there was, has probably been crashed 20 times. Um, Matt told me he's seeing 10 to 20 times more migrants illegally crossing the Foundation's land compared to last autumn. Last week I was coming through here and up here on the right there's a gate that was gate was laying down and border patrol were in there. They had just chased one through. The smugglers are using the change of administration in Washington to drum up business. Usually on this 90-minute drive from Raymondville to Hebronville, you might expect to see 10 border patrol officers and six officers from Texas's Department of Public Safety, but we saw none. Most everyone has been pulled down to the border itself to help with enforcement and processing, leaving the areas above without help. Our government has incentivized, somehow, through 
through whatever message came across about five months ago that has resulted in this tenfold increase in crossings. Neil Wilkins, who runs the East Foundation, was in the truck with us. And that's really not a red statement or a blue statement. It's just a fact of what we're seeing. In the border town of McAllen, across from the bus depot, is a one-story brick building with a cross on the sign. This is where families who have just been processed by Border Patrol are dropped off for food, showers, and information. Around 700 families arrive every day. Some families that have children that they call tender age, which is from six years old younger, they cannot return them back to Mexico, so therefore those families are allowed to remain in the United States. Sister Norma Pimontel runs the Center for the Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. She says a change in policy on the other side of the border has also contributed to the emergency. Uh, Mexico is not allowing them to return back. Like when they used to be under the Trump administration, they were allowing everybody back to Mexico. In this case, uh, since the Biden administration, Mexico is not allowing uh, families with kids under the age of six back into Mexico. So those are the families that we're seeing right now increasing in great numbers. I saw dozens of new arrivals when I was there. All had young children, some only a couple of months old. Since Mexico has stopped taking back families with small kids, U.S. authorities have had to start processing them, whether they're applying for asylum or not. As more families and unaccompanied minors gain entry, news is swirling that America's borders are opening, encouraging others to come. Sheriff Benny Martinez says the situation risks spiraling out of control. There's a lot of issues that's occurring here that we're really not addressing. And if you, if you address immigration reform, all that will be taken care of. But nothing really, no one steps up and, and gets it done. When you cross the bridge over the Rio Grande from Mexico at McAllen, there's a big white sign with red letters that spell out bingo. It's advertising a hall where you can play, but it's also a reminder of the random fate awaiting those seeking to make a life in America. For those arriving, they're going to need all the help communities can offer them, and plenty of luck. John, the southern border is a really complex issue. I mean, when it comes to the numbers of people crossing, that's affected by the, the, the season. We tend to get more border crossings in the winter when it's a bit cooler. It's affected by what's happening on the American side. It's affected by what's happening on the Mexican side of the border as well, which I think is something that analysts of immigration in America sometimes overlook. What's your best understanding of what's going on at the border now and what's changed? The striking thing to my mind about what's happening at the border now is that it illustrates that the American immigration system as it currently exists is unfit for current purpose. And what I mean by that is that the system was designed to apprehend and deter single men crossing the border looking for work. It was not designed to process enormous numbers of families seeking asylum, and it was not designed to deal with tens of thousands of unaccompanied children. So cross-border migration, as it exists now at the southern border, is just 
testing the immigration system in ways that previous waves of immigration did not because the flow that's coming across is different from the flow that it was designed to deal with. Charlotte, as you heard in Alexandra's piece there, there is a perception around that there are some changes that Joe Biden made in the White House that have had a real effect on the southern border and have encouraged more people to try and cross it. First, what are those changes? And B, does it seem right to you to place so much weight on what the White House has has changed as a factor, given there are so many other things going on as well? Well, there were policies under the Trump administration that I think were kind of blatantly unethical, including separating kids from their parents. There was also the public charge rule of 2019, which said that people with disabilities and the poor could be barred from entering the country. There were restrictions on refugees, and Biden has started to reverse a lot of those. But there are two big things, I guess, that I'd point to and that Alexandra points to in in her piece in this week's issue. And those are that he ended the program that was installed during the Trump administration called Migrant Protection Protocols, which essentially required people who were seeking to come to America to be kept south of the border while they waited for their proceedings to go forward in immigration court. And the result was thousands of people living in squalid camps without running water or electricity. And Biden did end that. And so there are people who have come over from Mexico and can remain in America while their immigration cases proceed. The second thing is that the Biden administration still has something called Title 42 in place, which allows the government to expel people who have crossed the border immediately. But it's made clear that the government is not expelling minors, regardless of whether they do or don't qualify for asylum. And the result is that there are many families who are sending their children to America without them, betting that they'll be able to enter the country because of that shift. John, that does make it very much sound like there's a brutal trade-off here for Joe Biden in the sense that a more humane immigration policy, which is clearly something he'd like and clearly something a lot of Democrats would like, seems to encourage more undocumented migrants to cross the border, which then creates a big political problem for, for President Biden and potentially a helpful political issue for for the Republicans. I mean, we saw, of course, in Donald Trump's rise, quite how important this notion of immigration being out of control you know, was to, to President Trump's appeal. So you, if you're more humane, then you get a political crisis. If you're less humane, then you get a different kind of political crisis, you know, children in cages, etc. Is there any way for Biden to navigate through this without just annoying an awful lot of people? I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Republicans were always going to demagogue him on immigration. And even more so now that the COVID relief bill passed and it was so popular, they need to do something to dent him. And I think giving the impression that the border is out of control is a way to do that. But that doesn't mean that the border is not out of control. And I think it's tricky because any change from the Trump era policy was always going to stimulate demand just because it was so pent up when Trump was in office. So this was always going to happen. I'm not sure what can be done about it other than sort of the most important thing, I suppose, is better messaging from the administration. I think at some point Biden may have to take on the left wing of his party that wants to abolish ICE and halt deportations and just come out and say that's not going to happen. Traditionally, that's been a tactic that Democratic presidents have used. I'm showing my age when I think of it as a sister soldier moment when Bill Clinton came out against far left activists 
in his own party. But I think at some point, the Biden administration will have to have that fight with the left, but they really just need to get their messaging clear in a way that they haven't yet done. Though, John, I'm not sure if political messaging, though no doubt desirable in some ways, solves the problem for President Biden. I mean, if you look at projected economic growth in the US this year, it is really strong. Um, And it's particularly strong compared with what we're expecting to see in Mexico and in Central America. And if, you know, one of the factors that tends to be behind increased border crossing is when you get a really big economic sort of disparity between America and what's happening south of the southern border. So if what's happened in the past is any guide, then I expect that as well will be a really, really powerful pull factor encouraging people to try and cross into America, no matter what the president says, really. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It should be taken as read that he will also have to help reform a stressed and rickety system. He'll need more immigration judges. I think he may want to rethink how the asylum process works, not rethink eligibility, because there are legitimate reasons to give people asylum if they have a legitimate claim on it. But rethink how the system works so the hearings can be faster and people can be let in or sent home faster. But something to break up that bottleneck on the southern border, he's going to have to figure out what that is. I think in some ways, John Fasman, that that crisis on the border, though, does in in a little way give Biden out to dealing with the progressive left in that there's an immediate crisis that needs to be dealt with. The solutions for it include some of those that you listed, including having more judges at the border, faster proceedings, et cetera. There are logistical challenges involved in the crisis that need a direct response. And in some way, that forestalls the broader debate about whether ICE should be abolished or not. That's something that can take up a lot of oxygen, but actually isn't that relevant to the particular crisis at hand. Okay, thank you both. We'll look back on what Biden might learn from Ronald Reagan's big immigration reform in a moment. First, I should remind those of our listeners who don't yet subscribe to The Economist that they really should. The best offer is to be found at economist.com slash US pod. You can read Alexandra's full story from the Rio Grande in our US pages. We also report from Honduras and on the fate of introverts and extroverts in the office. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my high privilege and honor to introduce the President of the United States and Mrs. Reagan. In July 1986, New York City hosted four days of celebrations to mark the centennial of America's most famous female icon. The Americans were reminded that Miss Liberty, like the many millions she's welcomed to these shores, is a foreign birth. Unveiling the cleaned-up copper statue, Ronald Reagan called it a light unto the nations of all the world. And it's good to know that Miss Liberty is still giving life to the dream of a new world where old antagonisms could be cast aside and people of every nation could live together as one. France's president, François Mitterrand, was there along with a contingent of French craftsmen who'd helped with the restoration. Now we will unveil that gallant lady. Thank you and God bless you all. Liberty's raised torch, silhouetted against spectacular fireworks, provided the perfect TV moment. (laughs) 
It's easy to be cynical about the schmaltz years later, but Reagan himself believed fervently in the American mythology of immigration. For years, he argued for an amnesty for illegal immigrants, against the advice of his staff and public opinion. He had to get beyond the last electoral test of his presidency, the November 1986 midterms, before he could pass the Immigration Reform and Control Act. Designed as a one-off amnesty to end illegal immigration once and for all, nearly three million people qualified for a green card at the stroke of the president's pen. Further unauthorized immigration would be prevented by cracking down on businesses who employed undocumented migrants. Did it work? It's a question that looms over Joe Biden's plan to offer a path to citizenship for the next generation of undocumented migrants. And the answer is, not really. The sanctions on employers were not very punitive and poorly enforced. A loophole for farm workers was easily exploited. Illegal immigration did dip, but it began to climb again in the 1990s. The number of unauthorized immigrants in the US is now estimated to be 11 million. It's true that wages for immigrants who took a green card increased, and their children have certainly benefited. But only a tenth of those eligible for it chose to pursue full citizenship. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. It's on Reagan's own misty-eyed measure that the legacy of his great reform seems most ambiguous. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. Illegal immigration irked Reagan because he felt a permanent underclass of near-Americans would turn voters against all forms of immigration. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. As his parting address from the Oval Office made clear, his vision was as generous as the French gift of liberty. After 200 years, two centuries, she still stands strong and true on the granite ridge, and her glow is held steady no matter what storm. Goodbye, God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Charlotte, that Reagan immigration amnesty and what followed the uptick in border crossings in the 1990s after Ronald Reagan had supposedly solved this question in American politics is still really salient on the right. I mean, pretty much any proposal for immigration reform gets characterized very quickly on the right as being pro-amnesty and then is dead in the water. That's right. I was struck, though, by some polling on this that I saw recently, which showed that the people who have that view are actually a minority, even within the Republican Party. There was some polling done in late January by Morning Consult, and I was struck that only 36% of Republican respondents said they favor deportation for undocumented immigrants, and that a majority of Republicans prefer either legal residency or a path to citizenship, either of which could be classified as amnesty. And so that suggests to me that this is yet another issue that plays really well with an energized subset of the Republican Party, but actually doesn't represent the majority of the party. Which puts it in the same category as gun control, right? I mean, I think you have majority support for expanded background checks and other forms of gun control, but you have an extremely energized minority that can 
leverage discontent to block anything from happening. And this is kind of gold for Republicans, what's happening on the border now, right? There's a limit to how long you can complain about the gender identity of Mr. Potato Head. And this is something that makes Republican commentators, it gives them a lot of fodder. It makes them more comfortable. And so it's not surprising, really, that you see Republicans hopping on it. You know, Liz Cheney, who of Wyoming, who attracted censure from Trump loyalists, is now, you know, back to the Republican mainstream saying that, quote, when you say that you're not going to enforce our immigration laws, that has consequences. That's something that she said this week. And so you kind of see Republicans rallying around this issue again as something that's been a winner for them in the past and will continue to be so. But again, I do wonder about the long-term impact for Republicans, not that all voters who uh, are of immigrant origin vote only on immigration. We saw that in 2020, that there are a whole other range of issues that determine how they cast their ballots. But I still think that that polling data that shows it really is a minority of Republicans who have this hard line on immigration. I do think that that's telling. I think it's not only that immigrants don't vote primarily on immigration policy. I think you could almost push that further, Charlotte, and say they hardly vote at all on immigration policy. I mean, I think one of the political sort of confusions on the part of the Democratic Party for for a while on this issue is they've sort of assumed that being pro-immigration reform is the key to winning stable majorities in a country where the electorate is getting more and more diverse election by election. And though they've just you know, won an election, and so you, you might think that's the case, it really doesn't seem to be the case that immigration reform, paradoxically, is a top issue for the immigrants who vote in America. So I think this is an issue that needs to be solved. I think it's you know an important moral issue, an economic issue. But I think Democrats should probably get out of the habit of thinking that it's one that's going to be particularly good for them politically. I mean, I think it's one they should try and solve because it's the right thing to do. I'm not sure that they would necessarily get rewarded politically for, for solving it. In fact, perhaps even the opposite of that. One of the things that the Reagan's speech brought home is just how deeply polarized this issue has become between the parties when it wasn't before, right? You had a contingent of labor Democrats who were skeptical of immigration because they worried about its effect on wages, and you had a contingent of pro-business Republicans who were pro-immigration because they liked the idea of having a steady pool of inexpensive labor. Those seem to have sorted themselves out along cultural lines, mostly and along party lines, as the parties have sorted themselves out on cultural lines. Yes, Charlotte. So we've seen the Republican Party change quite a bit on immigration. The Democratic Party has changed a fair bit too. I mean, as John alluded to there, you've got the movement of Democratic-aligned unions and people like Bernie Sanders from being very sceptical on immigration for economic reasons, no concerns about its effect on the wages of unionized workers in America, to being much more pro-immigration. But also, if you go back to when Barack Obama was president, there were accusations then from the Republican Party that the Democrats were pro-open borders which at the time that accusation rang really hollow in the sense that Barack Obama's administration deported an enormous number of undocumented migrants. And he was very clear about how he had to enforce immigration laws in a fairly tough way because that was what the law said, even if he didn't necessarily want to do it. Now, fast forward uh, a few presidential terms, and there is a substantial number of Democrats like Ilan Omar who 
think that immigrations and customs enforcement should be abolished and who are much more willing to talk about making the border much more open and making America much more welcoming to immigrants in a way that I think Democrats four, eight more years ago were, were much more wary of, of talking in those terms. I think that's right. And I think you see Joe Biden trying to strike this balance between hewing in some ways to something that is a little bit closer to Obama's immigration policy while not wanting to completely anger the left wing of the party. But I think there is a risk of overstating the pressure from the left wing in that this is an issue that has been divisive for years. Yes, it has become more polarized since the age of Reagan, but certainly through the Trump administration, you had Republicans very clearly in terms of the Republican Party, if not the Republican electorate, but the Republican Party very clearly with one set of views the Democratic Party very clearly with opposing set of views. And I'm not sure that the issue can become more polarizing. And so I think that it helps bring people to the polls, particularly those on the Republican side who are anxious about open borders and want to listen to their favorite pundit on Fox News talking about the danger to American society. But I just don't think this is something that will make or break Biden's presidency. I think that's broadly right. I think the mechanism by which it causes him harm is not that he will lose his own voters in droves, but the demagoguing on immigration will shave off a few thousand voters here, a few thousand voters there, cause Democrats to lose control of Congress and sort of sink his presidency in, a, in the same sort of quagmire you saw in Obama's second term. I think that's right. All right. Thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to talk more about how Biden might defuse the immigration issue. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Joe Biden was elected partly as a last roll of the dice for bipartisanship. But as we've discussed, immigration is an issue where the center ground appears to be shrinking all the time. Fasman, you've been speaking to a real expert in this area. Yeah, yesterday I spoke with Ali Narani, who's been working on bipartisan policy on immigration in Washington for over a decade. He's president and CEO of the National Immigration Forum. The debate is always kind of separated into three buckets. Citizenship and the undocumented, enforcement at the border and the interior, and then you have the future of legal immigration. I think if you look at the polling across the political spectrum, there remains deep support across the political spectrum for citizenship for the undocumented. Now, the question around border enforcement these days is really code for asylum changes, given what we're seeing at the border. And that's just a stickier wicket. Then the third bucket, legal immigration, I would argue has always been the issue that has spiked immigration reform because it has the least amount of support in the public. And quite frankly, these days, I feel like we have to always relitigate the case for the future of immigration to the U.S., can you drill down a bit on what you mean by that? It seemed to me, I always thought that, sort of assumed that the path to citizenship is what the sticking point was, but the sticking point is actually the future of legal immigration. We did some polling over the course of uh, last summer, right in the height of COVID-19. 
you would think at that moment in time, there would be deep opposition to immigrants who are here. In fact, what we saw in our polling, what you saw publicly is that over the course of COVID-19, there's a deeper understanding of the contributions of the undocumented workforce to the uh, response and recovery to COVID-19 across the political spectrum. But when you ask the question about legal immigration, then people have serious concerns. You know, is, is the immigrant who's coming here, are they going to take my child's job? That's kind of the mindset. So the way we're trying to relitigate this is we're starting to think about the economic self-interest of the person who hopes to retire in the next 10 to 20 years. For that 58-year-old white male, to be kind of stereotypical about it, who wants to retire but has deep questions about immigration, let's talk to him about his the math of his checkbook when he retires and his you know, reliance on Social Security. And immigrants are going to play a big part of that. And so that conversation, to what extent do you think those concerns over, will an immigrant take my child's jobs, to what extent are those concerns a cover for deeper values concerns? And to what extent can these pocketbook issues change the debate? That's a great question, because I don't think it's any one uh, argument, right? And I think in the past, we've frankly over-relied on the economic argument and said, okay, let's get business out there talking about immigration and kind of we'll solve this. That clearly hasn't been the case. Immigration these days is really challenging the American identity. Um, so how do people define their American identity? And it's a combination of you know, belief in the free market, belief in law and order, and their faith. So we as advocates need to kind of understand the range of ways that people define their identity as an American. So let's turn to the legislation that's now in Congress. What do you think of, of Biden's immigration bill? I mean, as a matter of policy, I think what the, uh, President Biden put forward is, is great. It legalizes the undocumented. It you know, really thinks through in a creative way, increases to legal immigration, and it leaves open the door for uh, Republicans to add or subtract what they would like in terms of getting to a deal. As a matter of policy, it's great. As a matter of politics, it's hard to see at this particular moment how we get to 218 in the House, much less 260 in the Senate. So if that can't hit 60 and 218, in this current environment, what would the ideal practical legislative solution be? So I think that the, the legislative market can bear a fix for dreamers. I think there's bipartisan support in the House and the Senate to fix the uh, situation dreamers face. And then second, the agricultural industry has worked for years to broker really smart compromises between farm workers and growers. Last Congress, they got uh, bipartisan legislation through the House, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. And then in the Senate, uh, you take the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, which will bring along kind of more rural state Republicans, say like Idaho and you know Nebraska and even the Dakotas. And you pair that with a fix for dreamers, which will bring along some of your bigger population center states. Um, and you can see the opportunity to get to 60 on those two pieces. The question will be, what will Republicans want in terms of border enforcement slash asylum changes that Democrats can then agree with? John, let's pick up there where Ali left off. I mean, under President Obama, the idea was that you could get an immigration reform by enforcing if the White House with a Democratic president enforced immigration law and was tough on that. And the, and the deal was more immigration enforcement in exchange for immigration reform. So Republicans got their enforcement, Democrats got their reform. It, it didn't work then. What do you think the White House, Democrats in Congress could offer Republicans 
to increase the chances of a deal on those two items, on, on DACA, the childhood arrivals, and also on agricultural workers? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, that has been the structure of a sort of grand bipartisan immigration reform deal going back to the Bush presidency and I think also the late Clinton administration too. But I suspect that that deal is now unacceptable to a lot of both parties. I don't know that Democrats would accept increased detention, fewer people getting in, probably some sort of increased bolstered wall along the border too, right? And I don't know that Republicans could accept an amnesty. And first of all, for anything to happen, I think Biden has to not just get control, but convince people that he has control of the border and that he's not just stanching the flow, but that he has a plan to to sort of keep it under control. I think after that, I wonder if both sides might be better placed if they stopped searching for a grand bargain and just went for a series of little technocratic fixes that it might ultimately matter more, right? I could see a bargain wherein, you know, Democrats agreed to more money for Border Patrol officers and Border Patrol surveillance tech, and Republicans agreed to more money for immigration court judges and asylum officers. That's not terribly sexy, but that does get you some of the way toward what a bigger deal would have gotten you toward. I think the whole concept of a big deal is almost it's become mythical in American politics. It just seems so unlikely that it will materialize. And as years go on, it looks less and less likely. And so I think, John Fasman, you're exactly right. And Ali is right to point to specific areas where there might be progress, including on farm workers and dreamers. Um, The other thing that I would add to the policy mix is just how Biden is thinking about relations with Central American governments from which many of these migrants are coming. You know, that's another big shift, of course, in addition to not just having single men from Mexico come, you're having children come across the border, and those children are increasingly from Central American governments. So the Biden administration is thinking about how to limit aid to Central American governments to try to incent them to get corruption under control to make these countries places that not as many people are desperate to leave. That's a very long game. But I think back to the question of what an immigration package in America would look like, it will include some things that are short term and some things that are long term. But I think it won't include the grand immigration package that I think many advocates would favor. It's going to include things like policy shifts towards Central American governments. It's going to include more narrow policies on managing the crisis at the border, thinking about dreamers. But the idea of comprehensive immigration reform, I think, becomes less and less realistic, frankly, with each passing year. I agree with both of you on that. It seems much more likely to me that you get a series of skinnier bills trying to deal with specific things. But that would leave you know, the big issue here unresolved. There are, as we said already, about 11 million people within America who are undocumented. There is no way the federal government can deport 11 million people. It would cost an absurd amount of money. It would be impossible practically. It would also be inhumane given that lots of those 11 million, a really high proportion, have been in the country for decades. You know, These are not people who crossed the border recently, that mostly people who crossed the border before 2001. After 2001, the southern border became a lot harder. But you have this, you know, this extremely large number of undocumented migrants. And it seems quite likely to me at this point, that those folks will grow old and perhaps die in America, having lived 
almost an entire life in the country without ever having acquired the legal right to reside there. And that seems to me, at least, the most enormous political failure to deal with a really important issue. Yeah, I'd argue it's also a moral failure on America's part. I mean, these people have been, they're here for 30 or 40 years because they've been productive members of society. And I have no doubt they paid into Social Security, and they deserve some of it back. Yeah, immigration is one of these issues where it's central to American identity. It's the thing that makes America, America. And it's the issue on which its politics have been wholly unable to face square on. Um, And I don't see that changing, unfortunately. But the fact that it remains so central to political debate over so many years is a sign of um, how, how central it is to different Americans' conception, to Ali's point of what it means to be American and who gets to be American. And so I think it, 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 it's a debate that attracts interest and emotion, if not political action. Well, that's right. And I'm sure we'll be coming back to the issue before too long. Before I let you both go, however, I have a quiz. The Economist first reported on the US Border Patrol in 1949, noting that the agency was established just two decades prior. The first agents were given a badge and a handgun. Which crucial piece of equipment were the new recruits expected to provide themselves? Their clothes? Their uniform? A horse? Charlotte gets a point. A horse and a saddle, apparently. The federal government, however, would supply oats and hay. The US border with Mexico is the 10th longest land border in the world. Which is the longest? Something with Russia. Some Russian border. Or the US border with Canada, maybe. Fasman, you get a point for that. It's 1-1. It is indeed the US-Canada border, which is, I guess, wigglier than you might think it is, and therefore exceptionally long. In its early years, the Border Patrol was more concerned with stopping alcohol entering from Canada than people coming from Mexico. Smugglers built an underwater cable from Windsor, Ontario to Detroit that could deliver 40 cases of booze every hour. It's American ingenuity at its finest there. It's pretty impressive. There is a great book that came out a couple years ago called Northland. I think the author's name was Porter Fox. He traveled the length of the U.S.-Canadian border almost from coast to coast. It was a wonderful book. I feel like that's such a familiar, tr- I'm sure it's a great book, but I feel like there are all these books about some person setting off, you know, across Siberia or across some river land route. And I want to know, how do I get that gig? I know. I feel like it's like every, <laughs> every like late 30s, early 40s person's fantasy. <laughs> exactly. Wander alone through the wilderness. For exactly. I'm out of here. Writing. <laughs> <laughs> There's the antithesis of that is a book that I reread during lockdown, which is a really short book written in the 18th century by a writer called Xavier de Maistre, and it's called A Voyage Around My Bedroom. And at the time, there was a real vogue for travel literature. It was kind of new and fancy and travel was hard. And he wrote a spoof of this, which was just his account of uh, spending time in his bedroom. And he'd travel from one corner to the other and had various various thoughts as he went, which it you know felt pretty familiar during lockdown. Yeah, I think I need to send you some better escapist novels. I may try that in about two or three years. It may seem interesting again, but it's it's a little, it's perilously real right now. Except for the thoughts part at this point. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks also to John Shields and Nicholas Rofast for producing the podcast. If you like it, tell people and please leave us a star-spangled review You can get in touch via email. The address is radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. 
Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.